Hello and welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast. This is episode number 98 and we're going to be diving into talking about old-fashioned traditional Christmas foods. Now, not necessarily just the foods and recipes that your grandma or your parents might have served or your great-grandparents that you had on Christmas that are tradition in your family, but really diving back into history, the pioneer days and even further back, on what was considered traditional Christmas fare and why. I'm super excited for this episode. I think this is a really fun one. If you are a new time listener to the Pioneering Today podcast or an old time listener, I wanna welcome you and thank you for listening. My name is Melissa K. Norris. This is where we inspire your faith and your pioneer roots. As a homesteader, one of my favorite things is to really look back at the old way of doing things. I'm sure that's a big surprise to those of you who have been listening to this for any length of period of time. One of my favorite things. I love to look at the history of things, and if I can get my hands on really old cookbooks, I have found some of the best recipes and cooking things from scratch in those really old cookbooks because they didn't have the modern conveniences that we do now. And that is really when you were making everything yourself from scratch, much like the pioneers and the homesteaders of old did. Those are my favorite things. And some of the recipes and info I'm going to be sharing with you today happen to hail from some of those really old cookbooks. And one of them is my great, great grandmother's cookbook that I happen to have. It's the only thing that I have of hers. And I love getting recipes from that, but I've got some other older ones as well and some family recipes that have just been passed down for many years. And so I wanna share some of those with you today and then really talk about the history of it. So when we look back at the pioneers and traditional Christmas fair, some of it will depend upon the area of the country or where they migrated from. So for example, what would be traditional Christmas fare from migrants from Germany, migrants from Scandinavia, and we're talking about the US, of course, pioneers right specifically at this point, much of what they shared would be very cultural of what they had at their Christmas dinner. But as we look back, there are some things that they had at Christmas not just because it was tradition at Christmas, because it was actually the proper time of year in order for them to harvest it. One of the things that we will see mentioned a lot, especially, and this is stretching way further back than just the pioneers and the 1800s here in the United States, but even further back into England, is a Christmas goose. Most of us don't really eat goose anymore. It's not something that we're raising as a meat animal that we're buying on the grocery store shelves or that we're roasting and as part of our traditional Christmas dinner. But this was a very big part of the Christmas dinner way back in the day. And there's a really couple of good reasons for that, specifically on why it was at Christmas time. One, a goose is going to get bigger than a duck or a chicken. You're raising an animal that's going to feed more people, more mouths. You're going to get a bigger harvest on. And because usually at Christmas time, if at all possible, families would gather together and they would sometimes have to travel if they didn't live in the same community, but they would travel if at all possible. Not like we are now with crazy flight schedules, right? But they would travel if possible or they would come to one another's homes for dinner. So having a large thing of meat to make sure that everybody was served something was important. So that's why a goose in that instance is much more desirable and was used over a chicken or a duck because our chickens and our ducks are smaller. And a goose, this is really for the homesteader in you, 
a goose has down feathers, which we can then use. They use to stuff their pillows to make down comforters. If they were going down is a very insulating, it's very warm and it's soft as well. So it was something that they could use not just the meat and be their harvest for their Christmas dinner, but then they could also use it in other ways in their home. So that was another reason. And then at Christmas time, of course, when that weather turns cold for most areas, it would have turned really cold. And that's when the animal is going to be putting on more of their downs. They're going to be bringing in, just like any animal that's outside, your horses, your cattle, your chickens. In the fall, your chickens will start to molt. Then they'll bring in those new feathers. And of course, as those daylight hours get shorter, especially with your horses, if you're around any kind of equines, you will see that they develop that shaggier, thicker winter coat. Because they know as those daylight hours get shorter and those colder temperatures come in, they grow their thicker winter coat. Then that's true as well for your fowl or your geese. They're going to be putting on more of the down. So you were getting more of a harvest at that time. Plus at the end of the fall, they were eating everything and then they were going to be at their fattest point. Then as winter stretches on, of course, then they would start to lose some of that fat. So if they were harvested at Christmas time, then you had this big old beautiful bird that you could serve up and you were going to be able to harvest the most amount of the down in order to make things to keep your home warm or more comfortable. A Christmas goose is one of the big things that the pioneers have that we don't so much anymore. Now I have to tell y'all a story. Geese are not something that we raise here right now on the homestead. We do raise our own poultry, but for the moment it's just chicken. We have our laying hens and then we also raise and butcher all of our meat chickens, our chicken that is going to be for meat for the year as well. Plus the pork and beef. But when I was a little girl, there was a farm up the road a ways for us and we would stop on the way home from church. They had dairy cows, milk cows, and we could get fresh milk from them. So we would stop home and they had a, a system laid out. So even if they weren't there, that they, they had a milking room, a milking area with the fridge in it. And you would go in and you would get your milk and you would leave your money there. And they kind of, you know, they knew who their customers were. But to get to to get to the milk room where you would go and get your milk and pay for it, you had to open the gate and actually go in a little area of the field that was right next to the driveway to get it. And let me tell you what, their goose was better than any guard dog ever. I don't know what it was. He must have known that I was afraid of him and I was pretty little. I'm going to venture if my memory serves. I was probably between like five and seven years old. I wasn't very big. And sometimes he would come honking at my mama, but she wasn't that scared of him and she would get by fine but if I went with her and I wasn't keeping my eye out which it only took me once or twice and from then on out I was always looking for that goose he would come up and he would flap them big old wings and he'd be honking and he would go into attack mode he would try and bite and peck the back of my feet and let me tell you I could run so he I would see him and I'd be hightailing it for the car I'm like I'm done so I haven't raised goose, but that has been, that was my experience, especially as a little kid with, with their goose. So he was an excellent guard dog and he was very big. He was much bigger than the chickens. And I have to say, I would have probably enjoyed eating him at Christmas dinner after all of the grief he caused me and chasing me. If you didn't have a geese, like I said, it's going to depend upon what part of the country or where you were at. Any type of large piece of meat. So sometimes it could be a venison roast, a ham, of course, because back in the pioneer days, butchering time primarily came 
once you had those hard freezes. So your fall was you're going to be your hog butchering time. Beef usually as well because they waited until they had those good hard freezes because they didn't have the refrigeration that we do now so that they could hang the animal out. They could let it age if it was something that needed to be aged, such as beef or venison. They could let that age and then they would let it, it would be freezing temperatures out so that it would keep so they could hang it up. And then they also, of course, did our old-fashioned salt curing. So that was how they would preserve the meat and by smoking to keep it longer throughout the year. So a ham would be something that would be served as well. And as I'm talking about this in today's episode, guys, for the show notes, because I always have up for you on the blog show notes as well, you are going to be able to go and find different tutorials and recipes and links to all of this fun stuff that I'm talking about so that you can use this in your Christmas preparations or just your bank of knowledge and know-how. I have up an article on how to salt cure a ham at home. Get you links to that so you just know that you go to mostkenorris.com, click on the podcast button. This is episode number 98 or you can just go to mostkenorris.com slash 98 and it'll take you right to all the goodies. Of course, if you had just gotten a deer in the fall, because typically it's easier to hunt deer and get a deer in the fall. And part of the reason we have our hunting seasons, of course, now when it's only legal to get your deer during that period of time when your hunting season's open. But back in the day when the male deers would go into rut, it was easier. They were more focused on creating more deer than they were necessarily on the hunter sometimes it's easier to get a deer when they are in the rut than not. So they would be getting those in the fall time and then they would have that venison roast and that venison meat that they would save the roast or the bigger portion of the animal to serve at Christmas dinner. Talking about those really old time traditional Christmas fairs, a lot of times back in the day, white table sugar, which we think of now and have in such abundance and almost too much abundance in most cases, back then was a very prime commodity. So if any of my other Little House on the Prairie fans will remember that Ma kept a little thing of white table sugar that was only set out when company came. And the rest of the time, they either had the darker molasses brown sugar or they had it actually in like cones and cakes or the maple sugar which was different than the regular white sugar. When you look at a lot of these old time baking recipes and especially things that we would have at Christmas time, they would use molasses. And molasses a lot of, you know, of course we have in our gingerbread with the addition of our ginger spices. But a lot of those older cookie recipes and cakes and those kinds of things used molasses because back in the, where all the farmhouses and the homesteads were, you could produce your own molasses. It wasn't something that you had to buy or it was a crop that you could harvest and grow or you could get locally. So that's why you'll see a lot of those old time Christmas recipes and baking recipes used molasses instead of the counterpart of white table sugar. And some will use bits of some so that they could use some of the white sugar or brown sugar and then the addition of those molasses. It does give it a great, a different flavor variance, especially when you're using those blackstrap molasses. When you're using blackstrap molasses, it does have that stronger flavor. It's a very strong molasses flavor, but it also has more vitamins and minerals that you're getting into your diet. I like to use the blackstrap molasses as what we keep on hand. And you can also make brown sugar, little side note for our modern part, if you've got regular white sugar and you need brown sugar, if you've got molasses, you can just put some of those molasses and stir it into the white sugar and you can make your own brown sugar. And why that's desirable is because it actually usually produces a more moist end product because it's introducing in that moisture and kind of a 
as it bakes and when it's heated, it creates more of a, a caramelized flavor. So it can give more actually of a flavor depth when you're using those molasses or the brown sugar versus just your regular white table sugar. So a little side note for you there. But some of my favorite old-fashioned recipes use molasses. And there's a history on that and why we still incorporate that into our Christmas baking, especially even now. And two of those recipes I've got for you will be in the show notes. One is a soft molasses sugar cookie. And I am not kidding you, you guys. It is like the magnum opus of Christmas cookies. It like melts in your mouth. I can't even explain how good it is. And I only make them at Christmas time because if I make them, I'm eating them. And I could probably eat until I would make myself sick of them because they are so good. I could eat a whole cookie sheet at a time all by my lonesome. So I only make them at Christmas time. Otherwise, I would be eating them all the time. And the other one is really fun. And it's a recipe, like I was mentioning, from my great-great-grandmother's cookbook. And it is an old-fashioned ginger cream cookie. And that one's really fun as well. I love those old-fashioned recipes because not as many people make them anymore. Some of those older recipes are kind of getting lost by the wayside as time goes by. So I love to refine those and recreate those and make them and then share them with you guys as well. So those are two really fun ones. Traditional Christmas fare, you would also be having your winter squash is going to be a lot of your side. So baked acorn squash, butternut squash, pumpkin. Sometimes we'll have different pumpkin desserts, pumpkin pie still. A lot of the similar things that we would have at Thanksgiving also get carried over to Christmas. And that's because seasonally they were, they'd had those from the harvest. They were still there and they could bake those up and make them into some special things. And there's a couple of things that were very much considered a Christmas traditional fare. And some of these reach even further back, like I mentioned, than the pioneers back to England. And even further back than that, especially in the instance of, y'all knew this was coming, right? Fruitcake. <laughs> fruitcake. Oh, the poor fruitcake. It's not as popular or favorable as it was back in the day. And there's many jokes and stories and stuff on fruitcake. But... If we're going to be talking about traditional Christmas fare and really looking back, fruitcake was one of them. So the history of fruitcake actually stretches all the way back to Roman days. So it's a really, really old. One of the reasons, especially even with the pioneers, that we have fruitcake is because now we can go to the store and we can get pretty much any fruit fresh or vegetable, any kind of produce pretty much all year long. So we are super spoiled compared to back in the day. But back way back when before we had all of our modern agriculture and shipping systems and all that kind of stuff and even canning because now a lot of us like I have multiple quarts of home canned peaches and pears and jams and jellies I've got a lot of fruit put up home canning didn't really really come into play until the late 1800s and even more mainstream even until the early 1900s canning actually is a form of home food preservation is relatively new compared to when we look at the other methods. And that's where our fruitcake comes in. So of course we have drying. Drying is a very, very old form of home food preservation. So some of the fruit would be dried. So think your raisins, that was your grapes that were dried. Blueberries, cranberries, all that kind of stuff. Apples, a lot of the way that those would be preserved when they were on in the harvest time to take them through the whole year would be to dry them. So we've got our dried fruit. But another form was preserving fruit in alcohol. And uh, most of the time when we associate the candied fruits or the different fruits that have been soaked in alcohol, especially rum or brandy, 
when we start to think about the fruitcakes. So that was one of the reasons that fruitcakes were so important because they have the higher sugar content in there. Then you've got the fruit and then with the alcohol. And so it was a way of preserving the fruits and using that preserved food so that they could have the fruits to then serve at Christmas time when traditionally, depending upon where you lived, fresh fruit wasn't something that you had happening at that time of the year. And with the fruit cakes too, most of the time they were baked months prior or at least a month prior to Christmas in order for it to age and develop its full flavor. And then it was served at Christmas time. So that's a little bit of history there with the fruit cake for you. Now, another very traditional old timey thing that we've got to talk about are our pies. And again, the fruit comes out to play because fruit was something that most people could grow or harvest themselves. Whereas chocolate and cocoa powder and all of that stuff, depending on how far back we're going to go in the timeline, that wasn't something as easily accessible. But we could go out and you could harvest your fruit just like we do now and you could dry it or soak it in the alcohol as a way to preserve it. And then that would be something, a special treat that you could serve at holiday time without a load of extra expense. So apple pie is very traditional as well as pumpkin pie. Another pie that we don't have so much these days, but if we're really going back, would be mincemeat pie. So mincemeat pie, there are variations out there that don't actually contain meat, but a lot of the time it had minced up meat, then flavored with spices and fruit and sweeteners, and then it was baked into a pie. So this was really big. In fact, one of my mom's favorite, and if you've listened to some of our past episodes, especially our um, old-fashioned Great Depression recipes, and kitchen episodes, then you will have heard of this one. But one of my mom's favorite things from when she was a little girl that her grandma used to make was bear mincemeat pie. Like I said, there's different mock ones where you can use different kinds of fruit, but it was a way to take some meat, you'd mince it up really fine in order to stretch that out, and then you would put in your different fruits and your different spices. And that way, if you didn't have a lot of meat or you didn't have a lot of a certain kind of fruit, you could use different kinds of fruits with those spices and the different flavorings, and then you could create a full dessert in order to serve everybody and to stretch that out. So minced meat pies, those go a long ways back too. Speaking of pies, if you don't have it, I will put it in the show notes, but my great-grandmother's flaky pastry recipe is the best pie crust I have ever had. And it's not just me. Almost everyone has tried it, and it is in my book, The Made From Scratch Life, Simple Ways to Create a Natural Home. So if you've got a copy of that, and if you don't, if you're loving what I'm talking about, you're totally going to want to grab a copy of that. Then you have that recipe already in there, but it's also up on the blog, and I have had people who have said they have never been able to have create or bake a really good pie crust. They consider themselves a pie crust failure and they have tried her recipe and they cannot believe how easy it is and how good it is, not only eating wise, but to work with. So I'm just telling you, it's not just me and I can't take credit. My great grandma was an awesome baker and her pie crust recipe is the bomb. So if you don't have it, you're going to want to go to the show notes and grab it and grab a copy of the book because it's in there too with a lot of other great ones. Because when we're making our pies and doing our bacon, you got to have a no-fell recipe for the pie crust, right? Another thing that we would look back on that would be as a traditional Christmas fair and kind of the history of it would be steamed puddings. And those stretch way back, especially to, to Britain and across the ponds, not just even in pioneer days, but 
even further back over. Your steamed puddings used, a lot of them would use fruit. So you would have your fruit and it didn't require a lot of flour. And it's not a pudding like when you think of like now a lot of most of us when we think of pudding, we think of kind of like a custard or we think of like cooked chocolate pudding, right? Or vanilla pudding, tapioca pudding. It was a different texture than that. Kind of a cross between a cake and a custard, more so than a pudding that you're thinking of where you just eat it with a spoon and it kind of looks like whipped cream. Different pudding than that. But these are were really old and traditional recipes that were definitely served. And one of my favorite ones, and I got a recipe for you on that one as well, is it's a vintage recipe and it's a jam roly poly recipe without suet. One of my favorite things about this is this actual specific recipe is by my friend Andrea and she wrote up how to make it and shared it with us and it is from her great grandmother's recipe and it was actually made, one of the great things about it is it was a vintage war rations recipe because you can make it without sugar or sweetener and you can make it gluten-free as well. So those of y'all have got gluten-free people on your guest list or you might be gluten-free can do this in one as well. So what's really fun about this is it's going to be showcasing your homemade jams and jellies. So that's one of the areas that it gets its sweetener from. So it does have sugar in it because most of us use some type of sugar when we're making our homemade jams or jellies. And of course, it's going to have the natural sugars that's in the fruit, but we're not adding additional table sugar, or additional sugar to the recipe. Traditional roly-poly is it is a pudding, so you will mix your ingredients together, and then you're going to roll it out. So you'll kind of roll it out. You don't pre-bake it, though, like you would if you were doing, say, a pumpkin roll, but you're going to roll it out, and then you'll put your favorite jam or jelly in there, which I really love this because that's a way, that's a very homestead thing that they used back then is the things that they had preserved, specifically their fruit that we're talking about that gets to come out and really shine and play in a traditional Christmas dinner is you will pick your favorite jam or jelly that you've put up and you will put that on the rolled out. So kind of think like you're making cinnamon rolls, you know, you roll it out, then you spread your filling on that and then you're going to roll it back up. Then you're going to steam it. So this is where the steamed and the cooked puddings come in that are very, very old fashioned recipes. You're going to grease a bowl if you don't have a pudding mold. And a lot of us don't have pudding molds. Those are a really, really old thing. But you can use a Pyrex bowl and you will grease it. And then you will put the pudding inside of parchment paper, put it in that greased bowl. You're going to put the pudding in a steamer basket over boiling water and you're going to steam it over that boiling water for 45 minutes. And so that's what's cooking it. It's not baked though, it's by that steam heat. It's that wet heat that creates that cooked pudding that you get to showcase some of your favorite summer preserves in there. So this is a really fun recipe. And like I said, it doesn't have the additional sugar in it other than which is your jam or jelly. And then you can serve it with homemade whipped cream on top, which is super, super, super yummy. And all of these recipes and links to all of this fun stuff is available for you in the show notes, melissaqnorris.com slash 98. Can you believe that? We are so close to episode number 100, which I'm excited about. I hope that you will try, if you don't already, some of these old-fashioned traditional Christmas recipes. I just love learning the history behind those and some of the ways that they came into being and being traditional recipes. So I hope that you enjoyed that part as well. This week's verse of the week, and it's going to be from the Psalms, and it's Psalm 91, verse 1 through 2. 
He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall remain stable and fixed under the shadow of the Almighty, whose power no foe can withstand. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God. On Him I lean and rely, and in Him I confidently trust. You know, we're, we're talking about Christmas, and I love the Christmas season. If you haven't picked up on that, I totally love Christmas. But Christmas can be a very stressful time for some people, and it's been stressful for me in the past as well. And a lot of times, it brings out the worst in people instead of the best, unfortunately. And I found for me, when I'm really feeling stressed, be it because of a holiday or just other things that are going on in life, you know, we've all got different things that are going to be stressing us out. But when I start stressing on those things, I can almost always guarantee that it's because I'm not focusing on God and my relationship with Jesus and how that's what really matters. I start focusing on all the other things and letting those become more of a priority or more of a focus. And I lose my focal point, which should be Jesus. He should be our number one priority. And so whenever I lose that, then things kind of start to go haywire and I find myself stressed out and things just don't go so well. So I think it's really important that we remember to dwell in the secret place of the Most High so that we can remain stable and fixed under the shadow of the Almighty. And it's funny because when I put that into practice, we remember that a lot of the little things that are kind of stressing us out, they're really in the whole scope of eternity that those smaller things really aren't that big of a deal and we can just let them go. So I encourage you if you are feeling stressed out or you're worried and it could be big things that are causing you stress or worry it's not always little things but in the scope of eternity they're not as big as we're making them and God is big enough to handle them even if they are really big things he will totally handle them for us if we're dwelling with him so I just want to encourage you to go back and read that entire psalm psalm 91 is one of my favorite psalms in time of trouble anytime but go and read the rest of that psalm And it will help put everything in perspective for you. At least it always does for me. I want to thank you guys so much for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And I hope that you have a very wonderful, grace-filled, and Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And I'm really excited for some of our upcoming episodes as we go into the new year. I've got some awesome things planned for you guys. And I can't wait to visit with you next time. Thank you so much for listening.